have no relationship with it, to be quite honest. Uh, I don't remember the last time I had a cheesesteak, but people don't realize how much the real Philly sandwich is the roast pork. John's, um, there are a couple, Denix is really good in yeah. the Reading Terminal. Roast pork, yeah, all the way. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Ellen Yin is the founder and co-owner of High Street Hospitality Group and behind some of the best restaurants not just in Philadelphia, but the entire country. These include Fork, High Street on Market, and High Street Provisions. On this episode, we speak with Ellen about her journey to hospitality, the specialness of the Philadelphia restaurant scene, and what it was like to win a James Beard Award for America's Top Restaurateur. It's so great catching up with Ellen, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ellen this is Taste. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm great, and thank you for, for riding the train up from Philly uh, through Jersey, where you're from. I mean, I want to just, like, jump right into it. Philadelphia is one of our country's greatest food cities, hands down. Thank you for saying is, because I've heard so many times over the past decade or so that Philadelphia is becoming or yeah. is a rising star or something like that. And I, you know, of course, I'm I'm very proud to be Philadelphian, um, although I'm, I'm originally from New Jersey, but I, um, I'm very proud. I've lived there for close to, uh, I don't even want to admit it, but over 30 years. Yeah. And um, I, I just love the city. I'm super passionate about it. And I'm passionate about the food scene because I, I do think – you know, having traveled around the country and internationally, it is a great food scene. Fully formed. There is no future tense. This is happening now. And, of course, if you subscribe to the James Beard Awards as being anything, which we do here, you you won a big award. And Philly won many awards this year in the national categories. So, like, by your peers, you're being recognized. That said, I just want to – for our listeners, Philly isn't, like, on that natural tourism route, especially if you, like, live in the West Coast or if you live in the Midwest. You're not necessarily going through there. We'll talk about your restaurants, but why should we visit Philly in general? Well, uh, I think that that is increasingly becoming untrue, but um, uh, Philadelphia has definitely gotten a lot of recognition for – the livability, um, walkability, uh, green spaces, cultural scene. I mean, you can't beat it because if you want to go to the Barnes Foundation, for example, mm. world-class museum, you don't need to wait months to get in. You can just buy a ticket and you can mm-hmm. get into a museum. And the Barnes is just like absolutely one of like the top five in the world. Absolutely. I'm not rank anything. It's amazing. But right next door is the Rodin Museum, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I mean, the music scene is incredible. The Philadelphia Orchestra yeah. is phenomenal. You can get in. The Curtis Music Center is free. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is so much for so many people to do. And uh, like I said, now it's even more walkable than ever and yeah. bikeable and the parks are phenomenal. Lovely city to visit. It's it's, it's very nice um, to walk around. I've done that many times. 
So let me ask you then, if you're if booking a ticket from L.A. or, or, or Chicago or, or somewhere else, how do you visit for the food? How do you, like, take us through some spots, and of course we'll talk about your own, but you have a lot of pride and, and you know a lot of the community. How do, you, how do you navigate the city for food? Well, I think that making Center City your home base is always a great move because then you have access to all the neighborhoods. And Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods, and you can Mm. go from neighborhood to neighborhood by bike, by walking, however you want to do it. Um, That is one difference between Philadelphia and other cities. Sometimes when I go travel to another city and I have all these restaurants on my list that I want to go to, My Uber bill is ridiculous Mm -hmm. because I have to take the highway to get to this place or I need to um, rent a bike for the day or something. And Philly is a a mix, and so it's very easy to get around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would definitely make Center City one of my – my my base. Then I would say that um, focusing on different neighborhoods because they each have their own character. Um, obviously, Fishtown right now is mm-hmm. super hot, but South Philly has a lot of not only Italian but um, uh, Southeast Asian. There's this amazing Southeast Asian. Uh, for lack of a better word, um, fair or food mm. festival on Sundays where you can go oh, to cool. FDR Park and just eat all day. Um, you can go to the Italian market and see purveyors if you want to. And have, like, the best tacos on the East Coast. A- amazing tacos, um, you know. And uh, if you really want to get experimental, you could go to Korean barbecue in Olney or mm-hmm. you could go to Portuguese in mm-hmm. um, Northeast Philly. There's so much to choose from. Um besides the restaurants that are downtown. Yeah, and you talk about the multicultural elements of Philly, and and, and thank you for being like a, a tour guide. I, this wasn't like a <laughs> Visit Philly, like sponsored. You did such a nice job in, in summarizing where to stay, Center City, fully agree. Um, I have to bring up the possibly cursed, um, possibly uh, questionable cheesesteak. Do you have like a good, a bad, a complicated relationship with it? I have no relationship with it, to be quite honest. Uh, I don't remember the last time I had a cheesesteak, but people don't realize how much the real Philly sandwich is the roast pork. John's, baby. <laughs> John's. Um, there are a couple. Denick's is really good in yeah. the Reading Terminal. The Reading Terminal is an incredible market, by the way, uh, and a must uh, visit if you're into food. But um, uh, roast pork, yeah, all the way. All the way. It's a roast pork <laughs> town. I, I fully agree, and that's actually I've, I've mentioned on the show. Um, I have no relationship with this cheesesteak either, and the, the roast pork is amazing. But also, obviously, the Southeast Asian cuisine, the Mexican cuisine, um, everything in this city, everything you would imagine is in L.A. or New York is in Philly. It's just such a diversity. Yeah, and actually, like I said, just much more user-friendly. Absolutely. So let's talk about your your restaurants. We've got High Street and we've got Fork. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just hear a little bit about, for our listeners who aren't familiar with them, and, and many are, what are these two restaurants? What, what You know, one has been around for over 25 years. Wow. Um, tell, me, uh, tell me about both of them. Well, Fork opened at a time when there was barely any internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 25 years ago, 26 years ago to be completely um, Uh. exact. Um, And it was a time when the restaurant scene was just starting to ignite. And I think, you know, coming through the recessionary period of the late 80s and early 90s, the one thing about Philadelphia that is unique is that it is a city that is very supportive 
believe it or not, of entrepreneurship because the barrier to entry is low. To start a restaurant, to buy a liquor license, to enter the market, it is not as challenging as other cities. And so... In 1997, we decided that Old City was going to be one of the the last areas of Center City to be developed. Wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, and... much, much more was developed after that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And um, I love this space. It's a warehouse space. It's double wide. It has really tall ceilings. And I just fell in love with that particular location. Uh, I lived on the east side of Broad Street relatively close to the location of Fork. And while I was in college, I actually wrote a business plan for a restaurant in Old City. And that was kind of what encouraged me to keep going. And um, so we opened Fork 1997. Like I said, my first chef was Anne-Marie Lasher. And I, during my college years, had worked at a restaurant called La Terrasse, which was owned by Judy Wicks. And Judy is like the the Alice Waters of the mm. East Coast. And um, I learned a lot about what she was doing in terms of community building, but also her chef at that time, Kevin Von Klaus, was very passionate about local farms mm-hmm. and the importance of local agriculture to developing a community. Which is the story of new American cuisine in the late 90s. I mean, exactly. definitely following along the lines of Danny Meyer at Chicago Tavern, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So we started out um, with uh, using local farm produce, and that just evolved over 25 years into um, a restaurant that kind of pivoted and changed over that period of time. Uh, you know, we survived 9-11, then the 2008 recession from Anne-Marie. I had a Vietnamese chef named Tian Yeo who uh, was extremely creative. And then Terrence Fury, who um, came from New York City yeah. and I know who that home, is. Home, and... hometown boy with yeah. me from Monmouth County. Mm-hmm. And um, and then also after that, Eli Culp, of mm-hmm. course. And then after Eli, John Patterson and now George Madowski. Wow. So let me ask you the name Fork. It feels like very like late 90s. I love it. Like a single <laughs> name, like it, a little quirky. I just like feel like the, what was the energy like when you're opening in like the late 90s? What was the, was it scrappy? Was it what? Were, what was on the menu of your opening menu? Do you remember some of the things? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Um, there were these Greek lamb chops, loin lamb chops that she marinated in anchovy and herbs and olive oil, and then grilled them. That was probably one of my all-time favorite dishes. But you know, it was a time when it was protein side side, mm-hmm. protein carb veg, and um, the idea behind her cuisine was kind of bistro-esque in the sense that it was hot off the pan and onto your plate. And um, the restaurant was very busy at the time. There was really nothing between City Hall and Delaware River, Continental by Stephen Starr. Mm -hmm. We opened around the same time. Yeah, you and Stephen like running that town. (laughs) 25 years is his anniversary of Budokan this year. And uh, yeah. And same with Vetri. Vetri and Budokan both opened in 1998. And um, it was packed. I mean, we served dinner till 1130 at night. And then we had a late night menu after that. Now, post pandemic, we close. Yeah. <laughs> Last seating on the weekdays is at nine o'clock and um, 10 o'clock on the weekends. What's your relationship like with Stephen Starr? 
I love Stephen. Stephen is a tremendous supporter, mentor, um, somebody I greatly admire and uh, won the award in 2018 or 18 or 17, I believe. And the award you won this year. So it's an important award. And he's enigmatic. He's he's kind of dodges the press a lot. I've always wanted to talk to him on the show. He's he's funny. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. With press, he's really funny. I think he's had like an up and down relationship. Um, we'll we'll get into the James Beard Awards. You, you, I saw I was in the room in Chicago when you when you gave your acceptance speech for the best uh, restaurateur of the year. Huge award. But I want to hear a little bit about High Street, your other restaurant, which used to be called High Street on Market. Now it's called High Street. Right. So in 2004, we actually expanded to the building next to us, and we decided to call it Fork Etc. because it was a takeout bakery. We started our own bakery at that point and it had prepared foods and it was kind of a little market. It had a big table in the middle of the room, which we use for these um, weekly dinners, which were, you know, a set price, but you didn't know what you were going to eat until 12 o'clock that day. And um, that space was an incredible fun space, lots of memories of um, special dinners and guests, but it never picked up a dinner dinner traffic. And so when um, Eli came to Philadelphia, I think his experience at Terezi, having had Parm Mm -hmm. be the daytime component of Terezi, he thought, oh, well, maybe we can convert this space into one where we have a daytime program followed by a separate nighttime program. And so he really chefed up the sandwich seen um, in Philadelphia with (laughs) the high street menu. I mean, some of these sandwiches were amazing. Egg sandwiches for breakfast. Um, You know, it was really our common love for carbohydrates of well, you're bread baking. and, I think and you, pasta. You kind of bury the lead a little bit. The baking, too, is and, and later at High Street in Hudson in New York City. The baking was such a prominent you know, component of these restaurants. Well, we had gone out to San Francisco just to do some R&D, and we saw um, Josie the Baker at, um, I can't remember the name of the coffee shop, but the the oven was right smack in the back of the space. And we thought, what would it be like if a restaurant had their bread program be the front-facing yep. component? And that's why we, we had the oven in the dining room at High Street on Hudson. But when we created High Street on Market, we already had the bakery component. And that was when Alex Bois, of Lost, now of Lost Bread, joined us. And uh, Eli was just blown away by what Alex was doing with bread. Yeah. I mean, his breads uh, have been acclaimed. I mean, I feel like forever. I mean, in a sense that yeah. lost bread is like, that's a legendary name. It yeah. was, it is a legendary name. Yeah. And when Alex was with us at high street, he really helped brand a lot of what we were doing with the bread program. And that has progressed and evolved and continued. And now our bread is, um, you know, much more than just bread in the restaurant. Yeah. It's available in the farmer's market and all that. So, um, but anyway, High Street, yeah. So um, when when we started High Street, um, uh, we had an incredible team of High Street hospitality group being Eli, Alex Bois, of course, John Nodler, who ultimately he and his wife started Cadence mm-hmm. and, um, and also were part of the original High Street on Hudson team. Mm-hmm. John also was our chef at A Kitchen. So when we took over operating A Kitchen and Bar in Rittenhouse Square, he was the chef there. And um, that, that, that restaurant has an incredible wine program. But, you know, all our restaurants all depend on High Street for the bread. Yeah. Let's talk about New York. Let's talk about High Street and Hudson, which I, I, I was 
mentioning this to a friend last night when I was prepping for this interview. Um, and she used to work in in the meatpacking district. And she was like, man, I miss that place. I love that place. So, listener, we're speaking to you in the past tense. You you ran this remarkable restaurant. I, I was a fan. I went many times. Loved your uh, your daytime program. I think I went to that the most. But between 2015 and 2022, you ran this restaurant. Let's let's hear about it. It was like a great run. Um, how are you feeling now that it's a little bit less than a year of closing it? Well, to be quite honest, when the pandemic hit uh, and all our restaurants were shut down, I just knew that we did not have the bandwidth to completely reopen High Street because, you know, honest, honestly, all we lost so many of our team members at that time. In fact, our chef who was from Philadelphia came back to Philadelphia and is living in Philadelphia and really didn't have any intention of going back to New York. And so just having to start everything from ground up again, it's like opening a brand new restaurant. So I knew that we couldn't do it. So I, I kind of at that point yeah. knew that it wasn't going to continue. Mm-hmm. And both Eli and I love that restaurant. It has so much meaning to us. Um, you know, uh, uh, the the restaurant happened when, um, you know, obviously every most people in the industry know about Eli's accident. Yeah. He was on his way to New York and um, when the Amtrak um, train derailed and changed his life, um, that restaurant was for him to run and for him to be yeah. showcasing what he does in New York City. And uh, everybody rallied, the whole Philadelphia culinary community and New York City culinary community all rallied behind us to help support Eli through this incredibly difficult situation. And uh, for that reason, you know, I I feel sad because yeah. we developed so many friendships with the community and it was very, very challenging for us to operate. In retrospect, uh, the restaurant was probably too small yeah. for the ambition that lived in that restaurant. Yeah, the bread program alone. I mean, <laughs> you walk into the case and in having um, sliced breads and, and having um, you know uh, you know laminated dough croissants and et cetera, et cetera. Just so beautiful to walk in there and, and have so many different types of breads. Yeah, we missed understanding that component of the restaurant. Yeah, but. Um, it was a great run, and I I loved it. Um, I miss it, too. So you mentioned Eli Culp, and I just wanted to clarify for our audience, uh, Eli is a chef and your partner. Um, he was tragically paralyzed in an accident with, on Amtrak, and I got to know him um, probably a few months before his accident. I profiled him when he was opening High Street, and I, th- I don't think I've ever spoken to him since, but... Um, you know, I knew him at Teresi as well. Just such a f- talented chef, and, and incredibly just, and, talented, and is talented chef, and, and really, um, we did rally around that. We wanted, I think, as an industry, I say we as like the industry in New York wanted that restaurant to succeed so badly for Eli and you personally. Eli Culp is an incredibly resilient person. Yeah. He has um, two podcasts, in fact, one called Chef Radio Podcast, and it's been great for me to see Eli really embrace this part of his career, yeah. which, um, you know, he's doing tons of community work. His Delicious City podcast with Marissa Mignotta 
has been an incredible success. In fact, I was just on that. Yeah. Uh, making the rounds. <laughs> making the rounds. Uh, and it's just great to see him succeeding and being really happy at what he's doing. And that feels really good. Absolutely. I want to talk about uh, your, your your cookbook career. You've written <laughs> a cookbook um, in 2007. Uh, but first, let's, let's talk about cookbooks and combos. You're in the fall. You're going to launch this program that is featuring female cookbook authors in Philly. Um, what is, I would love to link to this info in the show notes and anyone in Philly can, can, can attend these events. They look yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my all-time favorite events in Philadelphia that had like a 23-year run was called The Book and the Cook. And Judy Fay was the producer of that. And uh, she did an incredible job of bringing authors from all over the world to Philadelphia. And with everybody trying to bring people back into urban cities, I just felt that was something missing. And so Sisterly Love Collective, which is one of my um, pet projects <laughs> with Jill Weber from Sojourn Hospitality, Jen Carroll and Sophia DeLeon, uh, we thought, wouldn't it be great to bring it back in a different format where we have women authors, which there are so many, and the cookbook industry mm-hmm. has evolved so much since the last book in the cook was 2008, mm. uh, and um, women entrepreneurs and restaurateurs and male allies who want to support and be part of it. So from September 22nd until October 25th, roughly, uh, we have over 24 authors coming to Philadelphia wow. to That's do different— That's amazing. Yes, it is amazing. That's ambitious. It is just like, oh, we're going to do it like monthly and we'll have a few, but like you said, 24. 24, wow. all coming during the month of of um, September to October, celebrating Philadelphia and what's happening in the food scene in Philadelphia. And uh, it's very exciting because we can have many different formats of events. Some of them are collaborative dinners. Some of them are um, uh, in the afternoon. For example, we're, we're working right now. This is something that may or may not come together, but um, Christina Tosi, we hope, will mm-hmm. pair up with Vernick Coffee Bar and yeah. host several other pastry chefs from Philadelphia. So we are we are trying to be as creative as possible, and there'll be book signings throughout the Philadelphia area and um, all these different Yeah, name some other names that you have confirmed or maybe Right. Confirmed. Yeah. So Natasha Pickowitz from um, New York City yeah. is going to be at um, Machine Shop with Emily Riddle. Um, I, I believe October eighth, uh, um, Nasim Alakani is coming to Fork cool. uh, October first. Uh, we are Love working that. with Clancy Miller from yeah. um, of the Culture, and yeah. she's from Philly, so we're very excited. And she was actually an extern at Fork. Oh, cool! <laughs> back in the day, yeah. Uh, back in the day, yeah. in nineteen ninety-eight. Um, wow! When she opening just graduated. Crew, yeah. Yep, opening crew. We are hosting Karen Akunowitz, Tanya Holland, Adrian Cheatham. You have amazing taste, and and you're just picking just amazing authors, like so many familiar faces. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anna Hezel from um, Brooklyn. Yeah. Former um, uh, co-host of the show. Uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't put that one together. Yeah, I know. She was at, yeah, from, uh, yeah, to 18 to 20. Well, yeah. her book, um, Tin to Table, is going to be at uh, Bloomsday. Great. Um, uh, we're also hosting Leah Koenig, yeah. um, who wrote Portico with Bridget Foy and Crybaby Pasta. Um, Let's see who else. Um, Maya Feller, who's a dietitian and nutritionist from New York City, will be at um, uh, Hale and True with um, uh, Angie Branca 
Reem Asil yeah. and Reem Cassis. Both are going to be part of the festival. Wow, both uh, Reams have been on the show. And <laughs> I, I really, that's a cool to bring both Reams together. Yeah, they won't be together for the same event. Okay. One will be with Apricot Stone and one will yeah. be with Nook um, Santorinan with Kalaya. Ah, right, right. So, um, yeah, there's so many. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few no, that are really you great. Went, you but. just ripped up like <laughs> probably like 10 previous guests on our show and, and many of our own authors. And uh, again, 24 authors. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. The, uh, the, the, the There's got to be a landing page that will. Yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be cookbooksandconvos.com and follow our Instagram, cookbooksandconvos. That's being sponsored by Open Table, um, yep. Philadelphia Magazine. Visit Philly and discover Philadelphia. You got the branding down. You got the you got the sponsor <laughs> shout outs. You, you're like ready to hit the stage. Um, and so you, um, Sherry Bayer is actually oh, cool. um, doing our um, press uh, um, announcement on Monday. Good. Well, Sherry, uh, so by the time this is, is out, it, the announcement will be out there. So, uh, so I, it's all to say, you must, you love cookbooks. Clearly, you're, you've you've committed all this time. So, tell me about your first book, and only book. My first and only book, um, at this point, at least, yeah. uh, folklore recipes and tales from an American bistro. Uh, is more a memoir and, you know, because Fork is a seasonal restaurant and because I'm not a chef, I'm a restaurateur, the book really tells a story of how we have kind of evolved Fork over, at that time, 10 years. I guess there could be a forthcoming revision um, hey, yeah. or um, sequel to Folklore, but um, I didn't really plan that yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, the book talks about different inspirations for the menu, travels, people who have been huge in my life and who have helped evolve the menu. Um, people, you know, that includes um, many different characters in my life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So there's that book. So maybe if there, you haven't really thought about a sequel, what, what what's the future book plan for you? Do you, do you have a proposal? Uh, no, I don't have it. Around? I, <laughs> See, I'm like thinking like I, you had something in the, your no, pocket. No, I don't have anything in my pocket. I am so busy yeah. reopening High Street. So we are um, in about a month and a half opening a new dining room for High Street. Great. At Ninth and Chestnut, um, and we are also helping to open uh, another A kitchen in Washington D.C. Okay, and um, just uh, trying to focus on making our group the best that it can be right now. Right. So books are in the sideline, but you're doing this big ambitious festival. Twenty five authors. So you're in the books land, but you're not maybe doing your own quite yet. Not yet. Okay. Um, but you'll be the first person to call, I call. Yeah, no, I think we should we should talk. We should collab. I think there's definitely um, a need for um, just gonna throw this out there. Maybe there's like a Philadelphia cookbook. You you're part of the community. Maybe there's a way to represent the city in some way that mm -hmm. you as a, as a spokesperson and someone who loves your city's culinary scene. Maybe there's a way to to write about it. I don't know. You never know. You never know. And on This Is Taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire, fast and furious taste check for you. Are you ready? Ready. Let's do it. Okay. Your favorite Philadelphia-only food? Well, that's a tough one because pretty much you can have a lot of 
Philadelphia has everything. But I'm going to say that there is only one Philadelphia food that is unique to Philadelphia, and that's water ice. Oh, yeah. And you said it the way that everyone— Water ice. Water ice. Although I'm from the Jersey part that says water ice. Yeah, water. (laughs) Yeah. No, definitely. The the water, though, Mm -hmm. it's the best word, especially spoken by a Philly res. The best AM pastry with coffee. Croissant. Uh, Sorry, almond croissant. Oh, almond, not pan au chocolat. Okay. I like that. <laughs> the best dessert, period. Best dessert, period. That one's a tough one, but I'm going to say um, pistachio ice cream. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. And it's it's hard to find good pistachio ice cream. Got to go to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. The best bread. Best bread. Um, I would say my f- personal favorite is rye. Mm. What makes a good rye? I just love that caraway yeah. flavor. And, yeah. and then, of course, it has to have... A really good crust on it. Yep. And a thin but like really toothsome crust. I agree. The most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. Underrated piece of kitchen equipment because I'm a home cook. It would be a toaster oven. Yeah. Oh, cool. What do you do in the toaster that maybe others aren't thinking? I do everything. <laughs> I live, live in a small apartment. Yeah. So uh, everything can go in a toaster oven. Us New Yorkers know that for real. <laughs> we know that for real. The most overrated piece of kitchen equipment. Thermocirculator from a restaurant tour perspective, of course. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to play around with those things anymore. <laughs> That's for the that's for the like the, the boys from the early two thousands mm-hmm. to play around with. Um, your favorite New York City restaurant right now? Well, of course, I love all my former alumni. So I'm gonna say um, uh, the most recent great meal I had was Golden Diner. Mm-hmm. I love that because all the food was reminiscent of you know things that are very familiar, but with a slightly different. Um, uh, taste and it was great to see David Lieberman there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, I just want to shout out to, of course, Mary Atia. She does a great job at Roth's. Um, I can't wait to eat there. Yeah. I have not eaten there, so um, yeah, love um, pastry program to see there. Is, is great too. Yeah, Ruffs. yeah, yeah. So, um, your favorite Philly restaurant that isn't your own? Favorite Philly restaurant? Well, I would say that based on frequency, it would have to be Pizzeria Badia. Oh my goodness. Are they, is he still doing like a limited number? Is it still that kind of thing? No, he has a restaurant in Fishtown that okay. has an incredible natural wine list. Oh, cool. I love What's that. What's it called? Um, the nat- it's called Pizzeria Badia. That's like the that That's is the, the name that of is it. the restaurant that you yeah. meant. There was an- another new one. Yeah, Philly is always popping off with new chefs. There's always new restaurants there. It's such an exciting city. There's always a new life there. Yeah, and when I say that's where I that's where I go the yeah. most yeah. because it's close to close to home. But um, but there are so many great restaurants for sure. Yeah, it's it's rich. <laughs> it's a rich text. Um, your favorite cookbook of all time? I would have to say I love Alice Waters' vegetable cookbook. I love the block prints, and I just love mm-hmm. how simple it is. Yeah, it's a, it flows. It's really—I love that book, too. Thank you for reminding me of it. I need mm-hmm. to pick that up. Yeah, it flows. It's like has this real, like, you know, it's calming, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, with those prints. Um, your favorite recent cookbook discovery? Well, I'm going to go off track here, and I'm going to say my favorite book that I've read that is hospitality-driven mm-hmm. is Unreasonable Hospitality. I love that book. Yeah, Will Gadara's book. So, <laughs> and it featured on The Bear. Uh, yeah, I saw Prominent that scene. <laughs> Funny. So why? I, I, he was on the show recently, and, and why? I think, you know, I've always been aligned with that type of hospitality where you are just trying to— um, Really consider who your customer is and what their what is going to make their experience really unique. Mm-hmm. And although Fork and A Kitchen and High Street aren't 
11 Madison and we don't have the same um, over-the-topness, we are always trying to blow our customers away. Yeah, and always just give them that, that personality and that level of hospitality that's unique to you and you only. Yeah. Exactly. Um, did you watch The Bear? I have been watching it. I'm not done yet, but yeah. I, I sneak that in at nighttime. <laughs> Taking it slow, triggering. How, how, are you, how are you doing with that with that watch? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, lots, lots to say. We don't need to say any more about that. Okay, your final question is your favorite sandwich. My favorite sandwich is actually a tuna melt. There's my jersey, oh. my jerseyness. <laughs> yeah. So, what makes a good tuna salad? Um, tuna salad, um, not. I like um, obviously really good tuna. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that kind of defeats the whole purpose of a tuna melt. Yeah. Because if you're going to put all this melty cheese on top, I don't know if you need. Ahi tuna. So I would just say I love, um, you know, poached tuna. That's probably a good quality poached tuna from, um, you know, Bonito, Spain, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, not too much mayonnaise, Um, you know, good um, seasoning, of course, and then um, and then really good cheese. Yeah, we're talking cheddar. Cheddar, and then of course the bread has to be rye. Rye, obviously, coming around to that one. Ellen Yin, thank you so much for joining. This is Taste. Thank you, Matt. Andrew Tarlow, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm wondering if you could tell me like why now was the time to make a diner cookbook because obviously the restaurant has has been around for a while. Yeah, so diner's turning 25 years. We'll turn 25 years this New Year's Eve. Happy birthday. Um uh, Happy birthday, Diner, and all the people who have been involved in it. Julia Gillard, who is one of the co-authors of this book, had this collection of photographs that she'd been sitting on from working there for for a long time as a bartender. And, you know, originally she was taking pictures for herself, not like with anything in context to like as a book or like some idea. So then when we talked and we really wanted to publish all those photographs, um, that really became sort of the impetus to make the book. So as a way of publishing and obviously honoring Diner and all the people who worked there for so long, you know. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that because the photos um, are the first thing you encounter and they're such a significant part of a cookbook. It's unusual. Not to sound weird, but I think, you know, Julie and I have worked creatively for a very long time. She was the photographer at Diner Journal for a very long time. We've also done a lot of creative work in terms of like, you know, taking pictures for the website or taking pictures for ourselves, like setting up still lights, those kind of things. So I think there was a way in which um, it very much became sort of like, that's her art, which were those photographs she took as a, you know, a photographer snapping real life. And then there's a whole part of it on the recipe section that is like, well, what happens when we make when we want to make something and how do we showcase that in this room, right? Which is like another part of her work. Um, and it's obviously more collaborative because we do that together versus, um, you know, her original photographs are obviously her snapshots by herself. Yeah. Tell me about bridging that gap. Did you shoot all of the recipes at diner or how did you make the second, um, yeah. segment of shooting feel like, uh, it was yeah. still making sense? Yeah, great question. So we did set some constructs for ourselves. We shot everything inside of Diner or around Diner. We didn't go to studio. So 
one of the things was like, how do we continue to make this interesting? And how do we like, if we're working in the same room, you can't just have the same plate on the same white paper every day. You know, it's like, that wouldn't work. So we really started become and start to try to think expansively like how do we think creatively about this space and like what do we wish the table would look like what do we wish how do we wish we'd like to sit in this room or who we'd like to sit here with us you know and things like that so um we also wanted to create a narrative i don't think it's like so concrete like a like a novel but we are trying to create a, a narrative arc with the photos. And so in that editing process, thinking through what goes first, what comes next. We were also very color focused. That was also part of the processes that we were thinking through the color stories for each time period of the book from beginning to end. Can you call out like some of the the main colors that you were focusing on when you were telling that story? In the, in the book, and obviously we're on a podcast so no one can see it, but in the book, you'll see that we actually left in our color notes. So we had, so part of my process, I make a mock book internally for myself that we use as like a template for what we're going to do. And so we left the color, the color coding as a template in the book. So when you see it, you'll, you'll, you'll come, it'll all make sense. So talking about this chronology of photos, did you shoot the dishes in the order that they appear in the book or did you fit that together afterwards? Yeah, we didn't. We we ended up fitting it in afterwards. We shot in like maybe like in half days because we were inside of diners, so we couldn't be there all day. So we would get there early, sort of like seven in the morning and then work up into a certain point. Um, and then we more or less shot seasonally for um i think for our own need of like trying to be real that makes sense and it you know it doesn't mean that they all those things but yeah so we rearranged them a little bit later so in terms of shooting seasonally does that mean that you would shoot like one season of recipes and then put everything on pause and pick it back up in a couple of months correct wow okay how long did it take to shoot everything yeah it took a long time i mean we had the weird advantage of the book you know was supposed to was not necessarily yeah so i think it wasn't necessarily supposed to come out now it ended up getting pushed because of the pandemic so we did a big chunk pre-pandemic and then we did a, a the other two well i guess the other third chunk just at the end of the pandemic or just when like sort of things got back to like people could eat in restaurants again mm-hmm that's so fascinating to me. I think for people listening might not know that most of the time you would shoot a cookbook over, you know, maybe a week or so in studio and knock out all of the recipes. But Diner is such a seasonal restaurant, such an important seasonal restaurant that I guess it does make sense, especially some of the produce that you're working with that isn't available during the entire year to be able to shoot yeah. it as it's coming out um, makes sense. And were they dishes that were being served in the restaurant at that time or a mix of things? A little mix of things, but equally also like besides the seasonality vegetables, we also actually wanted to be cold in the winter when we were like, like dressed appropriately and like, because we are also part and parcel of this storyline. So we also wanted to make sure we actually felt it. Yeah. Um, and clearly, obviously, the you know, we, we shot with all natural light. There's no, there's not really any lighting in it. So I think also that difference in lighting was very important to us. 
Definitely. It wasn't the normal food media like Thanksgiving in July kind of shoot situation. Yeah. And with the big like globe light and all those things, we were, you know, we're trying to make, we're trying to like, at least for myself, like when we, when I've done these things, we try and set up these like unique constraints that we have to work inside of to kind of get different answers than you would normally get in a, uh, a straight studio setting. Are you thinking about your previous book when you're talking about these constraints? Oh yeah. So like the previous book, when we made that, we did all the dinners were live and shot live and we all ate them, right? There were no, there was no studio shots at all. So anytime, so we, we had to like, yeah, we had to act in it and do it and eat it and make sure it worked all in one, in one go. Yeah. There was like, there was no redo. I love that. I love dinner at the long table. I feel like that is something you can't really fake when there is that chemistry and that kind of realness of, of wanting to shoot the food so that you can eat it before it gets cold, you know? Yeah. So like that one, we would shoot in three day stretches together where we would do like two or three meals at a time and like a lunch, a dinner and a dinner or some some constraint like that. And there would be, you know, the production crew was like, eight or 10 of us. And then we would obviously invite people to eat at the table with us and then we'd serve them. So like the whole thing really was like us trying to make a, I mean, a dinner party or a restaurant, you know, a a setting like that, that was real. You know, it was so much fun. Yeah. It seems like a lot of fun. I'm curious, did you ever think about writing out the menus in the diner book on the table the way that the menus are normally written? Because in the book, they're um, kind of styled and formatted differently. There's a few written on the table, um, and there's a few pieces that we wrote. I think it might be... I can't remember why we didn't do... Maybe it seemed too obvious. I don't know. I don't <laughs> actually have an answer. I think we did. I mean, we did do some writing of words on paper around, um, like I think in the first page, it says day, day to night, like on, on the white paper. So there are places that it's there, but like just to do the menu seemed, um, maybe seemed too obvious. I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe. I think for myself as a diner at diner, the first time that I, when I think probably the first year I moved to New York, I didn't know about the writing on the tablecloth shtick. And I was mm-hmm. looking around for a menu. And at the risk of exposing myself, I think I had just like eaten an edible before I was going to see a show at Baby's All Right. So when my it. server started, you know, made eye contact and started writing on the table, I like lost my mind completely. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it was like that. so much to take in. Yeah, I the person I was eating with, we both were just kind of stunned by all of that, um, which is funny because, you know, as someone that works in food media now, like that is such an a known part of the diner experience. But just to be someone walking in off the street, I was I was not ready. And it was such a fun thing. Yeah. That's so great. I love that story. Yeah. I mean, most people don't know unless you've eaten there where someone tells you. And, you know, I think just to add to the, to that storyline, you know, the way that happened for us, I know you call it a shtick, which it obviously has become that sort of, but like the reality is when we opened the restaurant, the, that night, like say we're opening at five, literally at about three 30, I realized that we hadn't thought about printing or making menus like we didn't even have a piece of paper we had nothing so the answer really was we're just going to write it down right here right now 
And we didn't even have, at that time, we didn't even have um, guest checks because I had been working at the Odeon, so we had been used to working with a POS system. We couldn't afford a POS system. So also, like, if you had eaten there, your bill was on that same tablecloth. We would actually just add the prices up of what you got and then just add tax. And then that was the whole thing. But then, of course, we didn't have any receipts. <laughs> and maybe there was like a burger juice on part of the receipt written down on the table as well. Exactly. It was nice. So we used to be able to we used to be able to put hearts on things when we were going to give them gifts. Like we would at that time, we'd like if you came, you know, we wanted to buy you a salad or something. We would just put a heart on that. So we would you know it wouldn't be charged. Oh, I love that. And, you know, I did call it a shtick, but I think that's probably underselling it. Um, even if that is, you know, now you've been around for long enough that you could have printed menus yeah. if you wanted to. But the fact that it came from a real place of just necessity and that it's like stuck around as a nod to that and also how much the menu can change based on what's available, I think is is really nice that it isn't just something that you made up because it would be uh, fun for someone that walks in off the street like me, but it was just how it had to be done. Yeah. Um, so going back to that first night, it was a, a New Year's Eve, right? Yeah. So New Year's Eve, we the New Year's Eve when we opened, we really only opened as a bar. We served ourselves. We we made a dinner of Castellet. Caroline cooked it for everybody who worked on the project. And it was a bunch of construction workers and um, and friends and everyone who helped out. There was probably like 12 or 15 of us. And then we ate that kind of early, maybe seven o'clock, six o'clock. And then we had no heat and no hot water. So we, had, we didn't have gas, basically. And we then went behind the bar. We cleaned all those dishes in cold water and went behind the bar. And then we opened up as a bar for that night for the party. So um, we really didn't serve guests probably until January 3rd or 4th. That makes sense. And then when you did start doing the food, did you have any like early successes or, or dishes that you knew would stick around on the menu for a while? Um, I mean, the truth is, you know, some of those early dishes that had been so successful, we actually took off based on challenging ourselves for sourcing. Because when we first opened, we were buying conventional beef at the restaurant. So like we really served hanger steaks. We served a lot of hanger steaks at that time with mashed potatoes and it was a very popular dish it was very it was priced really well and when we started really when we started buying vegetables from the from farmers at the at union square and at mccarran park and then getting farmers to deliver to us and then we started asking where this beef came from we really realized how unsustainable the i don't really want to go totally into it but really how unsustainable the food systems are here in America and the beef where our beef was coming from. And again, hanger steak specifically, there's only two hangers per cow. So there's like maybe four to six orders or eight orders that we would actually get in a restaurant or let's even say 10. We were probably serving like 30 of these things a night, every night. So each cow, it just got to like really upset me at my core. And that's when we started to figure out how to source cows and beef directly from farmers and is the impetus for the butcher shop and lots of other things that we've done moving forward. But we ended up taking our best-selling dish off the menu in order to like facilitate what our overall goals were for a um, healthier planet and a health, healthier ecosystem in the restaurant. 
Wow. And is that when the burger came onto the menu as like another beef substitute? Yeah, we already had the burger on the menu. But believe it or not, Hanger Steak outsold the burger at that time. Wow. Uh, I think it was just like a more grown up version. Obviously, price, you know, all these price, you know, prices were very different at that time. But I think, um, yeah, Hanger Steak outsold the burger at that time. And we've always had the burger, but certainly the burger was a huge help in being able to buy whole cows, right? So we were we were buying whole cows, and we still buy whole cows, but we were buying whole cows and having a certain amount of beef that can actually go into grind is sort of a necessary component of being able to having those steaks. But like to this day, like we haven't really had a hanger steak at diner since just because we actually just sell it retail at the butcher shop and you have to really go on a certain day. Like it sells out within, you know, as soon as it basically gets into the case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the burger is like one of my favorite burgers in the city. I'm curious, like what you think the secret to a really great burger is. I mean, for sure, it's sourcing um, at the start. And then, you know, we put a lot of energy into like, where are these cows? I mean, like, what, like, what does it look like now? How much fat? Is it winter? Is it summer? Is it spring? We also cook them off. We cook one off before service and taste them and make sure the seasoning's right. You know, we treat it as if like it's any dish that we would be serving where we're really like tasting it and not just like, you know, oh, yeah, we know how we like we're not assuming we know how to make it. Let's say it that way. We're actually like making it every day and and thinking of it as like a new thing without making any changes. Like we have a standard for it. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about summer to winter. Like what is the difference in terms of the is it the fat is changing in the like beef itself that you're getting? Yeah. For sure. And then how rich is that fat? Because if they've eaten a lot of grass, the fat is much richer. And then if it's winter feed, which is mostly baleage, so it's grass that they've turned into these big bales that ferment. And then the cows eat like a fermented grass, which is very rich for them um, and great. But like it changes the the leanness and the quality of the beef. Mm. That's interesting. But our beef is all, yeah, our beef is all 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, right? There's no corn and no, there's no added ingredients. It's only grass. Uh-huh. Well, it's a great burger. And I, as much as the burger is a draw for diner, I think what the cookbook is really getting at is the fact that it's been like a community restaurant and uh, a kind of very seminal restaurant in New York. And I'm curious, like, especially 25 years in, like, do you see diner as having the same community? Has that community evolved? Yeah, I mean, the community obviously is involved. I think it's gotten bigger. You know, as you stand in the same place long enough, you can, you know, it should obviously grow. It shouldn't get more selective. And I would be amiss to say, like, obviously, Williamsburg and Brooklyn has changed immensely and will continue to change like anything else in New York City. And we are, you know, effectively a little boat in that ocean of change all the time. So we're going to ride all those waves, ups and downs and everything in between. You know, so we're not here to like, I guess I'm not really here to make statements or make change for things. I'm here to be the open door and be that community boat for everybody, wherever that might take us. Definitely. And I think it's an interesting time to be trying to be a community restaurant in New York, especially coming out of the early days of the pandemic when we really couldn't be gathering in that kind of way. I'm curious if you've seen any restaurants open over the past few years that you think are doing a similar thing in terms of trying to like 
cultivate a community or have that kind of space um, for a neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, I think that most restaurants have that as an intention. I mean, I guess some are really just trying to make money or maybe just make food. But like, I think anyone that has any restaurant that you can think of that like has a proprietor and like has people who care about it and own it are trying to create some form of community in there. They might not be able to identify it or like talk about it, but I'm sure like if you really dug in there intentionally, yeah, they want to see people come back and eat their food and find joy and be taken care of. Right. Like, right. I can't, I can't say that I invented it. It's just that we realized that it was happening. So we were very self-reflective about what was going on in the dining room. Right. I think probably most restaurants would say that they want to do that. But also if you say you want to make a community, like that's not really how you go about doing it. So I'm curious if like there are any (laughs) parts of the diner playbook that you've tried to replicate at some of your other restaurants. Like how do you like kind of fix that gap between wanting to do something and then actually building a restaurant that feels that way for people? Wow, what a great question. I mean, my playbook has been to like take some of the DNA from one of the places and bring it over to the other one, sort of like setting the culture up within mother, you know, like almost like making how we make bread. So in a weird way, like I definitely think of it like that. I mean, it's going to sound corny, but you're like creating your own, a new dance, a new drama, a new play, a whole new thing. So it's like you have to kind of get in it. There is some figuring it out while while we're making it. And I, I, I'm like scared to say that out loud because I'm sure it's kind of stupid or silly. But like, I think the thing is like a living sculpture. In terms of like you build it as you go and you watch about what's happening? Like if you think about how I made this book versus how I made the last book, I made it differently. Right? It's like it was more set up. We were trying to do sets versus the other one. We were trying to like do it live. You know, it's like I'm trying to like make art all the time in all different ways in places where people wouldn't maybe even see that it's art. Mm, definitely. Are you going to do a party or a special menu or anything at Diner for the 25 year? We're definitely going to have a very big New Year's Eve party for sure. I think we're going to close down Berry Street in front of Diner and make a big tent. Nice. And have food and, and gas and heat and all of those things this time. Well, maybe we'll do a cold. I don't know. We'll definitely have food for sure. But... <laughs> Maybe we'll do a live fire on the street, but you got to come. Oh, I'm going to be there just for the live fire alone. Maybe maybe it will be a, a no gas party. That's kind of fun to bring it back to the roots. Yeah, I think no gas party would be, is a good idea. Yeah. Okay. You can take it. I love that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate your time. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.